if the recruiting organization in the people ops organization doesn't have its act together, then we can't hire engineers and deliver the products we want. Product gets buggier. People are calling support more often. They fall back on headcount. Then they call our sales organization. They're doing support all day and selling new stuff. And these spirals will happen. You have to kind of be very good at everything. And you have to be constantly looking out for problems and potholes and leadership gaps. Because if you don't catch them early, those potholes get huge and they swallow your whole damn company. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on today's show, how HubSpot CEO Brian Halligan won the marketing automation space and has set their sights on Salesforce. Starting a business has become easy, not easy in the sense of flipping a light switch, but easy because companies like Squarespace, Stripe, AWS, BigCommerce, and even our friends at HubSpot basically have made it so that if we all wanted to, by the end of this episode, we could spin up a server and a product, get a website that charges people money, and then set up a marketing stack to basically start acquiring customers. Right. I mean, there's this entire ecosystem, whether it's an accelerator program or there's plenty of funding out there. There's, there's everything out there that's possible for you to be able to start a business. It's super easy. That's exactly right. But there's not a lot out there about what happens after you go from zero to one. Right. What What's after one? Well, two comes after <laughs> one. But, And I think this is a little bit of a controversial opinion, but I would argue that at this point in time, given all of the resources that are out there, it's no longer hard to start a business. It's incredibly hard, though, to scale a business. Right. Not a lot has been written about scale-ups. I mean, we found at ProfitWell that the entire game has changed. We're not trying to scrape by anymore. No, we're, we're, we're no longer looking to scrape by, but we're, we're in constant pursuit of finding pockets of sustainable momentum. And that momentum is in terms of growth of customers. It's in terms of the product viability and engineering productivity that we have, and even just putting the right team together. And what's really interesting is that that means the company becomes the product, especially when you're in that scale-up phase. And ironically, what's incredibly difficult about this is that we have reached some level of quote-unquote success, but as we're trying to get to that next echelon of growth, there's just a lot of pain, not only mentally, but also operationally. Right. And this whole concept of scale-up is why I'm so excited to talk about this interview that we had with Brian Halligan, because I don't think there's anyone out there, or anyone we've talked to, rather, that represents this concept of scale-up more. Agreed. And, and for those of you who don't know, Brian Halligan is the CEO and founder of HubSpot. And HubSpot, for, for those of you who don't know, who are probably very few on the face of the planet, or at least in the face of tech, is essentially one of the dominating inbound marketing software platforms that basically helps small businesses turn into large businesses. And they're number one in the marketing automation space. They are a far number one and they've started to take on not only the CRM space, but also the help desk space. And a couple of other places of growth that Brian wouldn't share with us today are, are coming on the horizon as well. He's written two books, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, co-authored by David Meerman Scott, and Inbound Marketing, who he co-authored with his co-founder at HubSpot, Dharmesh Shah. To me, he's the profile of a successful CEO that isn't done yet. And I think his story is the perfect one for us to reflect on essentially what it takes to scale up a company. And I think the perfect place to start in his story is actually with his deep affinity for the Grateful Dead. 
It's about to get weird, isn't it? Well, maybe a little bit. But I think that this story that he has and he's about to tell is actually uh, pretty reflective of who Brian is as a person. What was it like getting the wolf? Was it just like a dream that came true kind of thing? Or? Your viewers probably don't know what the wolf is. The wolf is Jerry Garcia's old guitar. And I'll tell you the story about it. I'm a big deadhead. No secret, you wrote a book basically. I wrote a book about <laughs> yeah. The wolf, his guitar he used through the 1970s was up for auction in New York City. And the day I went up for auction, like 100 of my deadhead buddies would say, you know, you should buy this. And I thought, that's not me. I don't, I'm not, first of all, I'm not showy. That's not my thing. And like, that's a lot of, it's giving me a lot of money. Like, no. And then my buddy David Meerman Scott, one of my best friends, he called me, and no one ever calls me. So I picked up the phone, I'm like, dude, what's up? And he's like, you should buy Wolf. Like, you're crazy, that's not my MO. So here's how you want to think about it. You've got money, right? And you're buying stocks and bonds and cash, and you're diversifying, doing all the stuff you're supposed to be doing, I assume, of course. You need to diversify your portfolio even further. And you could buy art, but you don't like art. But if you bought art, it could increase in value, and it's a diversified thing. You can kind of enjoy your wealth. This is like art. And if you buy it, it will probably increase in value and you can enjoy it and you can play it and you can loan it out. Okay, yeah, he got me thinking at that point. And so I happened to be in New York the week of the auction. I went over to the auctioneer, played the guitar a little bit. And it was cool, you know, that's something that I always dreamed of. And then I called David and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna bid on it. The auction was at the Brooklyn Bowl and there was a concert before it was a concert after and they did the auction halfway. And only people who had applied to bid could come and their friends. Probably six, seven hundred people there. And the first number came out, whatever it was, $800,000. And 60 hands went up, and my hand went up. I was told to do two things and two things only, because I had never bought anything in an auction. One, don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> two, have a number in your head and don't move from the number. And so I raised my hand, there's, everybody's got their hand up. I'm like, I'm never gonna get this thing. But then they incremented it up, incremented it up. I kept raising my hand and incremented it up. It was super fun, by the way. Yeah. I felt like I was in a movie. And then there was two of us. You know, it, it dropped off incredibly quickly at 1.5. And then it hit 1.6. I was the only one with my hand up. And then she went 1.7. There was no one else there. And she went around again. And I went. And the place erupted. <laughs> I, was, I was a famous rock star-like character for like two hours That's that awesome. one night. Everyone wanted to touch me and hear my story. Anyway, I have the guitar, and it's been, it's like owning the Stanley Cup. You know, the Stanley Cup, there's only one of them. And so they move it between team and team. I hear from all kinds of interesting musicians and whoever who want to like come to my house and visit it and play it. And the band wants to borrow it and play it on tour and stuff. So I've been loaning it out quite a, quite a bit. I travel with it. It's been a lot of fun. Well, it was cool is it was a donation to the Southern Poverty yes. Lessoner as well. All the money and was. Someone so matched it and yes. stuff like that. So I'm really psyched about it. The whole thing was really fun. Listening to Brian tell his story, I, I, I kind of feel like he has fun, maybe some pseudo hobbies, but, but really this is kind of a guy who's just hanging out at home, waiting for the next day to go back in and build HubSpot. You know, I think you're right. I think that Wolf is there and he definitely plays that from time to time, but he seems like someone that success and money hasn't changed him. There's this drive in him that keeps going. He's, he's very methodical and, and deliberate about what he does and what he says. He really doesn't strike me as someone that makes that many mistakes. Maybe, but I think, and I have the advantage of foresight because I conducted the interview. I, I think Brian, and he does admit this, has made a lot of mistakes. Um, and also from Instagram, you'll see that he plays Wolf a lot, uh, or at least people have posted him playing Wolf a lot and, and themselves playing Wolf. But to kind of bring this back to scaling up companies, 
Brian believes that these mistakes are absolutely crucial to actually growing and scaling up a business because they are an indication of that growth. But the secret, as he'll elucidate here in a second, is that you shouldn't make those mistakes twice. I think we made a lot of mistakes. I, me personally have made a lot of mistakes. And for me personally, it's been a big journey, like from first time being a CEO and wanting to give that a go. And the things I did from two of us to 20 of us were different than the things I did from 20 to 200 employees were different than what I do from 200 to 2,000. And those adjustments along the way have been tricky, haven't come naturally by any means. Uh, and there's been very explicit times where I step back and get feedback and look at my behavior and look at what I'm doing and what's adding value, what's subtracting value, and had to really consciously change what I do every day. That's been a surprise. How much I personally have had to evolve and do things that weren't natural. And so part of what I do is one, well, of course we try to avoid mistakes, but we make them, I make them. And just try not to make the same mistake twice, which we're decent at avoiding doing that. We're the thing about HubSpot is we learn from our mistakes and we're good at not making the same ones over and over and over again. I think that's sort of a quality that served the organization quite well. To scale, you need people. And I think that people, unfortunately, are inherently flawed. And so therefore, more people equals more problems. And I know that's a very pessimistic way to look at it. It might be a little out of character for myself, but in order to scale a company, how do you build that with people who are going to make mistakes? You just get rid of all the people. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I, I think th this brings up an important point, or at least the two points that I'm really interpreting from, from Halligan here. The first is, is that you need an organization that isn't necessarily malleable or flexible, but at least evolves as you're scaling. Too many organizations end up basically being very, very rigid. And then when things start to change as you scale, all of a sudden that rigidity and that inflexibility starts to become a huge liability within the organization. And then the other piece is it, it's really around commitment and the concept of the commitment not to make the same mistake twice. And I know that seems sort of simple, but the basic idea here is that you need to commit that you can make a mistake, but that mistake isn't going to happen again and you need to monitor it to make sure it doesn't happen again. This seems too straightforward. Well, it is, and most fundamentals are pretty straightforward. It's just really, really hard to live up to them, right? And even if you think about ProfitWell here, you know, just the ability to make sure that everyone's evolving as we are growing so quickly. And at 50 people going on 100 right now, that, that gets so much harder when mistakes are happening with all the people. And there's a lot of really, really great stuff happening. But I think the other piece that you really have to think about, and we learned this from Patty uh, McCord, the chief talent officer at Netflix who we interviewed, is that the opportunity is so crucial when it comes to a scale up. And it's so fast that all of a sudden that opportunity can pass you by if you're not focusing on these fundamentals and if you're messing things up. That's right. And listen to Brian here say that as it gets more complicated, you still can't suck at anything, especially if you want to scale. The example that he uses here is actually perfect. You have to do like almost everything quite well in a scale up. <laughs> like you can't suck at anything. Uh, you can't suck at people operations. Your product can't suck in any way, shape or form. You can't suck at marketing, you can't suck at servicing, you can't suck at selling. And if one of those things 
you're bad at, everything else kind of falls apart. It's, it's like everything, it's a system dynamics model, everything is very tightly coupled together. And if one of your departments or leaders falls down, really everything else gets pulled down. Like if the recruiting organization and the people ops organization doesn't have its act together, then we can't hire engineers and deliver the products we want. Product gets buggier. People are calling support more often. They fall back on headcount. Then they call our sales organization. They're doing support all day and selling new stuff. And these spirals will happen that are super, super damaging. And so like you have to kind of be very good at everything and you have to be constantly looking out for problems and potholes and leadership gaps. Because if you don't catch them early, those potholes get huge and they swallow your whole damn company. I'll give you an example. Back in maybe 2012, we had a huge release of our software we called HubSpot 3. Biggest, most important group of functionality released in our history. And it was a major improvement to the software, but it was buggy. And we opened it up to early adopters who wanted to give it a try. And, you know, a few hundred tried it, complained a little bit about the bugginess, but said, basically, it's good. And so we worked on it for three months, and then we pushed all of our customers to take the, the new software. And there were thousands of them. It turns out those were not early adopter types. They were mere mortals. And by forcing them onto your user interface change and some buggier software, it caused sort of this spiral to happen where normally our, our support organization, if you call support, it's less than a minute almost every time. Because so many people are calling, they're waiting 20 minutes on the phone, which is terrible. And because they're waiting so long, they would hang up the phone and then they would call their sales rep. And then the sales rep wasn't selling. And just we had this like a whirlpool going yeah. down. Yeah. And it took us, it took a huge, huge change in the way we deployed resources and a huge budget change that year to stop the whirlpool and get it spinning back in the same direction. And now we're paranoid about making the same mistake. So we have big changes coming, improvements coming in our product in the next two months. And, and I get very nervous at that time of year around any user interface change, any new product changes. How do we make it optional? How do we roll it out in a way that's super customer friendly? Because it's not so much that you impact your customers, which is terrible, you impact your whole system. That's one of my big lessons on scale-ups, like everything is completely tied together. And you, there's no hero, like when you've got 20 employees and you're behind on your sales number or people are waiting on support line, like everyone can jump on that support line. Everyone can go and sell and try to close that deal. Sure. It's just not possible at a larger scale. The whole system has to work together. So when it happens in that particular case, it took us about a month and a half to figure out what was really going on. It's like, okay, we got, we have diagnosed the problem. What are we gonna do? We moved budget around and hired a lot more support people. We moved budget around saying no new features, let's fix the bugs. Let's put a bunch of video training out there. And it took about three months to stop it. So a month and a half to figure it out month and a half to stop it. Then what we do is we say, okay, what was the data we wish we had seen a month and a half earlier? What chart could we have been looking at that would have shown us that there was something wrong? And so there's a chart that basically looks at the average wait time per, per customer. That would have been, we should have been looking at that. We were looking at that at the time, a long time ago. We put that in our deck and once a month we get a deck that comes out of HubSpot, it's about 100 slides long. And I can look at every graph in that deck and look back to the pothole that was created two, three, ten years ago that led us to start looking at that metric as a leading indicator to whether it would be happening again. So that's our method for trying not to make the same mistakes.
Your company on the path to scaling essentially needs to become a system that requires fine tuning, optimization, and, and even monitoring to make sure that one part of the system doesn't affect another part of the system. And this is where I struggle a lot with what Brian's talking about, not because I don't agree with the foundational ideas, but for the very fact that we've done everything in our power here, and this might be naive at 50 team members, but we've done everything in our power essentially to loosen the stranglehold that one part of the system may have on another part of the system, basically through you know decentralization of the different teams. Right, but we are doing a lot of this already. I mean, our board deck looks almost exactly like what Brian is describing. You're right, but I guess what I'm struggling with here is that it's not the foundational point that Brian's bringing up. I think everything he said makes a ton of sense, but there's gotta be a way to design a system of teams that scales without this issue of, of such interdependence. Maybe if every team is absolutely perfect, but it's kind of like I said before, people are inherently flawed. They're going to make mistakes. Sure, but, but maybe there's something in the actual structure of the teams. What we've been really focused on with our org structure is, is trying to find this outcome-based model. But again, I, I don't think that that outcome-based model would save us if all of a sudden the product team just tanked and the app became you know extremely buggy. Maybe it's a measure of size. We're not there yet, we're at 50. So some of what Brian is saying here doesn't really apply to us yet. You may be right. And, and I, I think that one, I'm just struggling because I, I want perfection or I want at least uh, imperfection that is scaling is, of course, of what Brian's really getting at here. But I think the, the bigger takeaways are, is that concept of fine tuning, optimization, and ultimately monitoring, which is, is a much bigger issue than I think a lot of people think about. What I worry about is if you get too good at executing, you almost get addicted to executing. So then sometimes when you're doing things, that can turn into just distractions. You might be executing on the wrong that things. That is a very insightful point. I try. Well, you you should, because it's pretty rare. Hey. But no, I'm just kidding. But I, I think Brian agrees with you. And what's kind of fascinating here is, is, is that we should listen to Brian's take on this whole concept of death by overeating. And overeating when you're trying to scale up can be so detrimental to that actually scaling up. Pay careful attention to the context he uses of when HubSpot decided to go head to head with Salesforce. And one of the challenges we have is not trying to bite off too much at the same time. And so the marketing app we were working on, and now it's the suite, and we all know it's pretty much what the next phase is, but we're only allowed to spend 15% of our resources on the next phase, 85% on the current phase. And so we're very careful not to get too distracted. I think startups and scale-ups are much more likely to die of overeating than starvation. There's way too many ideas that you can ever do, and you spread yourself super thin on the ideas, and you don't execute them, and you get your lunch eaten. So when do you, because it's, it's rare to see a company get to your size, even smaller than you, without a multi-product. Not necessarily different industries like sales versus marketing, but at least having multiple products within an industry. When to avoid that overeating, like, is there a point looking back that at least worked for HubSpot? Like, okay, we have X part of the market, growth is here, now we can go into another track. Like, is that something that you guys actively thought about? We were thinking about getting into CRM and sales for years for a long time. Like the, at the heart of marketing automation, the way we built it was kind of like a mini CRM already. But frankly, we were super tight partners with salesforce.com and many, many of their CRM customers were buying our marketing product. They acquired in the marketing space. 
And so the, they changed the battlefield a little bit, and we kind of had to respond to that. And we already had a marketing product, and uh, already had the makings of a CRM product. And so it was in our head, and that marketplace changed. said, let's just go and do it. And then there was a debate, should we acquire our way into CRM? There's a lot of little CRM companies out there. We looked at a bunch of them. And I just remember this one day in the conference room downstairs, and Darmesh is like, you know, we've got the heart of a CRM already built. Our product team's really good. They can continue to innovate. We're hiring well. And our customers really value that one user interface and the one bill to pay and the one support number to call. It's all together. It's Apple-like. Like, let's just build it. And it took us an extra year and a half. But man, that was the right call. Same thing, we're going into the service market now. There's a ton of companies that build ticketing systems and all this kind of stuff. Let's continue to build on our platform and, and try to win on that usability and be a little bit more patient. Um, so far, that's served us well. Brian seems like AI in 100 years. He's part human, part robot. He's very meticulous about his approach and execution. Did you on just certain... call Brian Halligan a robot? I did. But I mean, I think if I were Brian, if I had Wolf, I would just hang out and maybe follow the Grateful Dead, call it a retirement. I cannot imagine you as a deadhead. No, I think I would be more <laughs> of like a Beatles follower if they were still around. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's Paul. And, there's Ringo. And Ringo. Yeah. yeah, just hanging out. Hang but out with them, follow them. I, I think this is what's so hard about scaling, though right is that it's it's not it's not that this is and this is going to come off controversial but it's it's not that it's incredibly hard or complicated i should say it's not extremely complicated there are complications and there's also a lot of effort but it really takes that commitment to that consistency and i think what ends up happening is a lot of people end up getting from 0 to 1 they get to that 1 and then their that that success just kind of shapes them and they, they just feel like, oh, great, that was the massive accomplishment. I'm all done here. And I think for some folks, getting to one, you know, that's enough. It's, it's enough to just be able to take care of your family, to continue on that baseline of success, and not really move forward from that. And that's okay. But if you, if, if you want to scale, though, that that mindset or that feeling can actually be crippling because you all of a sudden start to get a little bougie, you get complacent, and all of a sudden you... It's almost like you get lazy. Well, and Brian doesn't strike me as someone that's complacent or lazy. No, of course not. And as Brian is about to tell us here, it's because himself and Darmesh, they don't feel like they've become successful. No. And I know that's that's insane and, and maybe offensive to some people, but it's that mindset where basically they feel like they're early on in their careers, even though they have so much career behind them. And pay careful attention on how they actually maintain that mindset specifically when it comes to attacking big, meaty problems. I don't, I don't know why we've been successful. <laughs> I think part of our success is neither Dormesh nor I feel like we're there. Like sure. we feel like there's a million miles left to go in the journey. And I feel like it's the second inning. Like there's so much more product in our head, so much more value to create, so much more lessons to learn. So I think there's a little bit of we're paranoid and hungry and still unsatisfied 11 and a half years in. I think that helps. I think it helps that we always had our eyes on a very big prize. We never wanted to sell the company. We always built, built something that was impactful, not just for ourselves, but for all of our customers and our partners and our, and our employees and our alumni even. And we wanted to have a big impact on our lives. My dad worked for GE his whole career. 
And as his son, GE's fallen out of favor recently, but for most of my life, I've been quite proud of the fact that my dad worked at GE, and I kind of brag about it. He worked at BBN as well, kind of cool. I want my kid, and maybe even his kid, to be, oh, my dad started HubSpot. I don't want it to be like, what's HubSpot? Never heard of that company. I want it to be, you know HubSpot, that awesome company impacted thousands of its customers' lives positively, thousands of employees' lives. It built a pillar company in Boston. All kinds of people left and started other companies in Boston. It got Boston back on the map. Like, I want that to be the narrative. And there's still a lot of hunger left for that. There's a quote out there, and I'm, I'm not going to get the quote wrong, but there's the quote is something like, if you, you're climbing up a mountain and you get to the top, okay, I got to the top, now I can see all these other mountains that I couldn't see before. And then you get substance, oh, I didn't see all these other mountains. That's kind of what's been happening. Like, you know, we got some product market fit and that was like a nice little milestone. We got our series A, we started raising venture, then we went public. Uh, those were all interesting. The product ones are more interesting where we had a marketing app, you know, it was marketing automation, inbound marketing. And that's gone quite well. It's grown fast, several hundred million dollars, still growing quite fast. And then we said, okay, we want to, what's our next thing? Well, we want to get into CRM and the sales business and turn ourselves into more of a suite than an app. And now we're getting into the service business. So marketing, sales, services, CRM, a full suite of products. So we're kind of moving from this chapter one of a marketing app company to more of a suite company. And we're still early in that, tons of work left to do. And the mission of the company is very much grounded in trying to nail that suite. It's going great. The marketing product's growing fast. It's a good-sized business. Sales product's growing incredibly fast. Tens of millions of dollars from every ripping growth. So that's going great. I won't say it on this podcast, but then we have two more chapters after that. Pretty well detailed out in our head. The next chapter is pretty well detailed out. The chapter after that is a little foggier. Sort of like horizon planning. We have our next horizons pretty well in mind. And they're much bigger markets, much bigger opportunities. And the employees know what that is. And I think they're motivated by the mission. They're motivated by the idea there's a lot more innovation to come, a lot more value to create. And uh, I think that helps having that, you know, the next waves. If we had just built a marketing automation system, stuck to our knitting, maybe moved up market, I think it would have been a lot less motivating for myself. I think we would have ended up selling the company to Salesforce or Oracle, one of these other big players. I don't think we would have been able to compete. Motivation isn't a destination, it's a mindset of constantly moving the ball forward. And it's really hard to exactly see what's going on 10 years out, but it's not hard to understand what are your next goals or the goals after that while you're achieving your current goals. This is long-term thinking, isn't it? Exactly, and to scale, you have to think long-term. And the secret becomes balancing, basically understanding where you're going and not letting the short-term goals distract you from that long-term vision, but also making sure that that long-term vision doesn't distract you from executing in a short-term capacity. That's where this concept of treating your company like a system that you're monitoring, optimizing, and fine-tuning. And it's not easy. But it's absolutely necessary if you want to scale. Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and Ben Hillman, with help from Robert Byrne and Alyssa Chan. Written and produced by Patrick Campbell. We are giving away 25 copies of Brian Halligan and Dharmesh Shah's book, Inbound Marketing, to individuals who head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and leave a nice, healthy comment. Screenshot that and send it to patrick at profitwell.com, and we'll send you a copy of Inbound Marketing.